Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Dr. Linda Chalker Scott, who is Associate Professor there, I can't talk this morning. Associate Professor and Extension Urban Horticulturist with Washington State University. Good morning. Hi, Carol. Nice to talk to you. Um, you are also the author of a whole bunch of stuff, including a couple of award-winning books. I guess your first one was The um, Informed Gardener, and that won Best Book Award from the Garden Writers Association, and that is a tough nut to crack. <laughs> so I've been told, yeah. <laughs> and you did it on your first try. I know. Um, that that's just amazing. Uh, but it, but it's a, it's a good book. It tells it gives you all sorts of information about myths, and we're going to deal a lot about myths today. But you also have another book that just came out last year. It is um, the how plants work, the science behind the amazing things plants do. And it just got an award for best book for 2016 from the American Horticulture Society. And you also got um, an award from the National Association of County Agricultural Agents. That's pretty yeah. special. Yeah, I thought so too. I was really, I, I mean, I was really pleased with both of them. I and mean, it just shows you, you know, the, the range of interest. It's not just the gardeners that want to know how plants work. You know, it's, it's anyone who works with plants, whether it's for fun or for, for profit. Yeah, in, the informed gardener talks mostly the gardening myths, as I said, and there's an awful lot of them out there. So let's do a little bit of myth busting. Um, probably one of the most heard ones that I'm getting from readers and listeners is uh, the thing about adding Epsom salts, and they're adding Epsom salts to just about everything. Now, how come it seems to work for them? Well, I think a lot of it's the emotional appeal. So, so as you know, Epsom salts are just magnesium sulfate. But, mm-hmm. you know, we have this vision of Epsom salts as being something that, you know, our grandmothers had underneath their bathroom cabinets that they'd make a nice foot bath with after, you know, working all day and sit there and soak. And so there's just this, there's this mental image of something that is refreshing and good for you. So I think what we do is we kind of take that mental image and we apply it to, to plants and think that, you know, and obviously not thinking this um, out loud, but just kind of assuming if it's, so, if it's so great for us, it must be great for plants too. And that's been um, <laughs> made it even more uh, into a myth because there's been um, a number of online publications that look official in terms of being based on, on, on research, in terms of all the things that Epsom salt can do for your plants, um, any kind of plants and anything you want in terms of greener, you know, greener leaves, you know, bigger flowers, uh, you know, better fruit production, whatever you want, it seems to be there. So it seems like this, this miracle product, and I think that everybody wants that magic bullet. Um, but it's really funny because there is so little science behind it um, I'll, and I'll have to tell you that actually I'm doing research right now, um, collecting data on using Epsom salts 
on houseplants because that's one of the things that they're recommended for in terms of, you know, having um, lusher foliage and all this. So I'm doing a, a, a three-way test. I've got um, plants that are being uh, watered once a month with Epsom salts, which is what's recommended on the label, and other plants that are watered nothing but water, and then a third set that's watered, and then once a month um, just a regular houseplant fertilizer. And so after several months, we're going to compare and see which group does best. Hmm. Now, but regular houseplant fertilizer does have magnesium in it if it's, you know, one of the, you know, like the blue stuff. Right. Um, and so I wonder whether adding magnesium to that also would make a difference. If you didn't have any magnesium in the system, sure. I mean, this is where a lot of this, you know, the plant deficiency research is done. It's done hydroponically, and, you know, you grow seedlings in the absence of um uh, well, if you do it in the absence of anything, then they die. But if you do, you make up these uh, these solutions that are missing one element, and then you grow them just in the presence of all the other elements, and then you compare them all to the control, which has all the elements, and you can see the difference. And so this is where, you know, if you go online and look for magnesium deficiency in plants, you'll see these horrendous pictures of what plants look like. And that's true, and that's based on, on these systems where they're, they're excluding magnesium. But few of us have magnesium deficient soils. Um, this is just something that doesn't happen for home gardens and landscapes. It can happen in, in very intensively cropped uh, fruit orchards um, and then that's, that's dealt with you know, as, as a production issue. But for home gardeners and stuff, it's just not a problem. We're not missing magnesium in our soils. I wondered, you know, since magnesium is part of the chlorophyll ma- ma- molecule whether the magnesium was whether maybe that had something with the myth getting started oh sure i mean when you when you look at what magnesium does in terms of its uh, involvement in you know in the, in plant cells um, if you exclude it you're going to have all kinds of problems and the one that you see is you know the chlorosis the you know the the, the change in, in the greenness um so, so that, that I think is, is a very powerful message that, you know, without magnesium, this is what happens, and Epsom salts has magnesium in it, and this is why it does, you know, such wonderful things for your plants. But as I said, um, few of any of us really have magnesium deficiencies in our, either our houseplant soils, which are balanced, you know, with, with everything, um, or in our garden landscape soils, which um, commonly actually have too much magnesium. Ours was low according to soil tests, but um, the cure in our area, since our soils are so acidic, is we add dolomitic lime to it, and that takes you know that takes care of that problem. So right. I'm just I was just kind of curious about where that started. I kind of like your idea of grandma using it because <laughs> I do remember it being under the under the kitchen sink in in their house. But yeah, yeah, and, and to be honest, you know, I I did an intensive literature search to try to figure out where where this where this myth came from, um, and this is what I what I do with my myth busting, as you know, and this was one of those things where I just could not find any evidence anywhere, you know, some little nucleus of truth that maybe a myth was built off of. I mean, as I said, it, uh, magnesium sulfate gets used a lot um, in treating magnesium deficiency in um, intensively cropped orchards. But that's pretty much it um, in terms of the research. There is none having to do with, with roses or houseplants or lawn or anything. It's just not there. So it was just, 
made up out of whole cloth. It's it's really quite amazing. <laughs> I wonder if that's also why a lot of people like to use the soap and water mix mixes for um, for killing bugs. Well, that one is a little bit easier to see because there are horticultural soaps, as you know, for mm-hmm, sure. insecticides, and those are formulated specifically for that purpose. And I think what a lot of times people like to do, and there's a certain unnamed um, garden personality who pushes home remedies. <laughs> yes, um, I remember him. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll, look at, they'll look at these things at the store, and they'll see how expensive they are, and they're really not that expensive, but they'll say, gee, I could do this at home because I've got dishwashing liquid, and I could just mix it up and do it myself. And I think that there's a, you know, that's the independent streak in all of us. We like to do things better ourselves. But in terms of, of taking a household product which is not formulated to be an insecticide and then just assuming that you can, you know, mimic what, what, a, what a formulated horticultural soap does, you know, it's a, it's a huge mistake. It can cause a lot of damage to the plants, um, not to mention all the collateral damage to insects that aren't problems. I learned my lesson with that one with the, using dish soap because I'd had one bottle of ivory liquid that I'd used for years and years and years just as an insecticide mixed with water. And then that bottle, of course, ran out eventually after many years. And I went out one morning and I saw that um, I, I saw that we had a whole lot of aphids and no ladybugs. So I decided, well, I will get some more and I will go um, spray my tree. And so I did. And the next day I came home from work and the tree didn't look very good. And within three days all the leaves were dropping off. <laughs> and all it was was the change in the, a little change in the formula. Yeah. But on the other hand, with insecticidal soaps, I think a lot of people fall into this more is better thing too. And I used to carry a bottle of um, one brand of insecticide insecticidal soap and another brand that was uh, an insect killer or excuse me a weed killer and i made my classes my master gardener classes take a look at the label and you know potassium salts with fatty acids mm-hmm. insane and, and it was the dose made the poison yeah now one of the things that we always used to do was use bone meal and use it in the planting hole yeah, and this and it goes back to the you know the the, the old adage about you know um, making a, making a five dollar hole for a fifty cent plant or whatever it was, and so what was behind that was all the stuff that you add to the planting hole, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that. Sure. But yeah, the, the whole uh, bone meal, the planting hole, um, and this is what well, this is one of those interesting things where there's actually a kernel of truth behind it. So you were supposed to do this, especially when doing bare root roses or planting bulbs, because it would be a way of, of um, encouraging rapid root growth. And, um, you know, for we can go into the history of, of phosphate use, and, and, and you know very well that when you're growing crops intensively that you run out of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium the quickest, and that's the NPK that are on the, that's on the label. And phosphorus is associated with with root growth, but in a really odd way in terms of what we're doing with um, our landscape and garden plants. So if you if you put in too much phosphorus, and this is what bone meal primarily is, um, it inhibits those great little mycorrhizal fungi. And, uh, you know, any, any gardener knows, you know, those, those are great for um, covering the roots, especially if you're woody plants and perennials, because they help with water and, and nutrient uptake. And if you put in too much phosphorus, those mycorrhizal fungi don't grow. 
And so then what happens is the plant has to compensate for the loss of its, of its partners, and it grows more roots, but it's, at, it's to its deficit because it could be putting that growth into leaves, but it has to grow roots to take up the phosphate and other things that the mycorrhizae normally do. So there's the kernel of truth that, yes, if you add lots of phosphate, um, <laughs> you will get more root growth um, to a certain extent, but that's not necessarily a good thing for the plant. We were always taught, well, when I was a kid, and you know, our Girl Scout leader and stuff would teach us that that the reason that you put phosphorus down in the planting hole is because it doesn't travel very far through the soil. It's very slow to move, and because if you're planting things like bulbs, they're going to be there for a long, long, long time. Yeah, and so so there's two things going on there. One is, you know, the whole the whole you know, we're using the agricultural model and assuming that we don't have enough phosphate in our soils, which if any <laughs> if almost any gardener does a soil test for phosphorus, they're gonna be horrified to see how high it is. But the second part is this whole immobility thing, and that's an interesting um issue that I probably ought to do a miss column about because um it's true that when they do these soil tests, you know, they're analyzing phosphate that's extracted by a variety of different ways, and they can say it's available or not available. But that has to do availability um, in this extraction process. It has nothing to do with availability in a living soil system. So you've got these mycorrhizal fungi in there, and mycorrhizae are incredibly adept at taking up phosphorus from a variety of sources. And what roots and fungi do is they acidify the soil around them. They make it, they make it so that the phosphorus is more soluble. So I don't think there's any such thing as unavailable phosphorus, frankly, because I think that mycorrhizal fungi and roots are very adept at seeking out and taking it up wherever it is. Interesting. I hadn't considered that take before. And, yes, that would be – I would like to have you do a paper on that and, and find <laughs> out because so much has changed. I've been gardening for well, a little bit more than 60 years, and things have changed so much in that time. What we knew, what we knew for sure, what we knew for sure back then, which we know is wrong now, um, and – Oh, and that phosphorus thing, that is just a whole other can of worms. But we're going to have to take a little break right now. When we come back, let's talk about the phosphorus problem because a lot of people don't realize what a big deal is it and how big a problem it can be. We'll be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking today with Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, who is the author of a couple of really great books. And, and before the break, we were talking about um, talking about phosphorus in the soil. And phosphorus is a problem. Most, most soils, as you said, don't really need the added phosphorus. And we've had this big myth going on for years and years about um, how we needed to add well, down here in this area, it's ten, ten, ten fertilizer to just about everything. And the lawn fertilizers had a lot of um, phosphorus in them. And that's a real pollution problem, isn't it? It really is. And for anyone who um, is in a state where they depend on something coming out of the water, like, like our state depends on um, salmon fisheries, you know, it's it's the death knell for these aquatic systems because, um, excess phosphate, as you know, causes excess algal growth, and then you get algal death, and then you get bacterial growth, and then you have no oxygen in the water anymore. Now, I know that Chip, the area around the Chesapeake Bay was probably the first, I think, to start talking about the problems of phosphorus. And, but now it's all up and down the East Coast. Um, New Jersey is one of the states, I think, that's enacted pretty strict regulations on um, what fertilizers can be sold in the state. Um, it, but, you know, I, what amazes me is that more people just don't go and get a soil test done. I know. Um, and, you know, what I, what I kind of compare it to is, um, you know, health care. So, <laughs> you know, most of us go in and we'll go to the doctor and we'll have various lab tests done. And then if you've got an iron deficiency or something like that, there's a way of dealing with it. And so my analogy is it's like going into, you know, a, one of these supplement stores and just buying everything and taking them home and taking them all without knowing what you actually need and what you have too little of and what you have too much of. And that's the same thing that happens when we continue to add, you know, these, these uh, complete fertilizers and micronutrients and all this stuff without knowing really what our soils need. And the funny thing is, if you do a soil test, which will cost you maybe $15 if you send it to, you know, a university lab, um, you'll find out you probably don't need much, and you'll save a ton of money because you don't have to buy all these other fertilizers. You know, you can buy one thing, which mm-hmm. generally speaking is nitrogen, and that's usually the only thing most people need. Yeah, it always I always wondered about that and when I talked to people, and sometimes um, – in, in our state, back when I was working for Extension, it was only four dollars. But they'd say, "Well, but it, it costs so much, you know." And I said, "But it's going to save you that much more money in the meantime." And fortunately, after a year or two, I was able to gather some kind of anecdotal evidence about what phosphorus can do. Like a, a farmer that used to use ten, ten, ten on his garden all the time and found that over the years his garden was getting less and less productive. And he um, finally he had an extension agent for uh, a next-door neighbor and finally asked the, the extension agent. And the extension agent did a soil test, and they found that his phosphorus levels were just practically out of sight. They were, were actually becoming toxic. Yep. And phosphorus is one of those things that, I think is, is a hidden problem a lot of people don't realize they have. Yeah, he was just throwing fertilizer and fertilizer and fertilizer, and of course, instead of using ammonium nitrate or something, he was using 10-10-10, which just made the problem worse. And I wonder how often that happens to people. 
Oh, I think it's it's incredibly common. Um, as you know, because I, I know you've been following things on, on the Facebook group a lot, um, we have an experiment going on right now where we're doing soil tests of um, home gardens and landscapes around uh, one of our uh, river watersheds where I work, and we're finding ranges of phosphate. Well, let me, let me back up and say that for, for landscape trees and shrubs, you know, about 12 to 15 parts per million is plenty. And for vegetable gardens, maybe up to 25 to 30 parts per million. Um, we were finding range, the very lowest we had was 35 parts per million, and the highest was 432. Whoa! Yeah. I mean, it, it's, 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 nothing was normal on any of these garden sites, and it's because people do assume they need a complete fertilizer, which is, you know, the 10, 10, 10, um, and they use the bone meal, and they use the chicken manure, and all these other very, very um, high phosphate content materials, and the phosphate just doesn't get used up that quickly. That's, that's an astounding, that's an astounding finding to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I assume these people... You mentioned it was in the river corridor, so yeah. all that stuff is going or right down into the river, just like it does here. Um, and, you know, I was really startled to learn that I was funded, part of my um, expenses were funded by the EPA and after UGA had done a test of the water going into and out of major suburban areas around Atlanta. And... We used to think that all the problem with phosphorus was the big farms and, you know, cattle wandering through their their um, creeks and stuff like that. And we found that the problem was coming off of suburban landscapes. Yep, yep. And I know it's uh, the, the agricultural lands get blamed for this, and then if it's not the ag lands, then it's the, 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 lawn, the home lawns. And in our state, you can't buy phosphorus-containing uh, lawn fertilizer anymore unless you have a demonstrated soil deficiency and so it's not the lawns anymore and it's not the ag groups um it's it's home gardeners that just that that blows me away but yep. you know you hear it all the time and they, and they talk about the npk and why you need all three of them um so got folks the moral to this is just go get yourself a soil test every few years it's not going to break you it'll save you a lot of money i was interested to find out that um not only were my soils uh had had a few other problems when i first started but in for some crops that i wanted to grow like cabbage the cabbage family um we were low in boron and so I had to add a really minuscule amount of, of borax to uh, the garden for those row crops. And, and that's what's so great about, as you mentioned, about getting the soil test because, you know, you will find, and everyone's soil will be different. You know, you'll find something that might be a little bit low, and then you can just, you know, very carefully add, add what you need and not more of the other stuff. I don't know how it is in Washington State, but in Georgia, they will tell you exactly what you need and how much um, per feet of row or per per thousand square feet or hundred square feet, and so you know that when you're going out to buy. Because I noticed another thing that happened that I've seen happen fairly often is people will buy a big bag of fertilizer because it's cheaper by the pound um, that way, and then they bring it home and they didn't have a use for it because it was a great big bag and they didn't need that much. So they just keep applying it. (laughs) 
That's just right. so they wouldn't have to store it. And it's, uh, the whole thing is kind of mind-boggling to me. But now, our audience is much too smart for that. They're not going to do it. But I bet you they have some other myths. And one of the things that we hear a lot around here is that pine straw makes soil acidic. Yeah. Um, and, and that you can kind of understand because, you know, there are tannic acids and things that leach out of um, pine needles and other types of woody material. But it doesn't affect the soil pH because what you have to think about is how vast the soil is. So, it, you know, you, you can see how far it goes horizontally, but then it goes vertically and it just keeps going and it's all, you know, connected. And, and sure, you'll have some localized issues, but perhaps right where the soil is touching um, the mulch, you might have it be a little more acidic, but that effect is neutralized um, over the vast soil volume. The only time you might see a difference is if you were using those pine needles in a really, you know, deep mulch in a, in a container or a raised bed or something else where it's a smaller soil system and it's not connected to the entire, you know, <laughs> the entire soil system. Thank you for that because that's one that I get all the time, well, you know, when I say, well, use your pine straw. It's a perfect mulch. Um, and they say, well, isn't it going to make my soil acidic? Thank you for laying that one to let rest. Now, we talk, you, I know that you're a big fan of plain old arborist's wood chips, the stuff that you get when you, you know, call it, follow the power company or ask them to dump a load for you or your local friendly tree man. And a lot of people say, oh, as soon as you mention wood chips, they say, oh, but that's going to um, steal nitrogen. Yeah, it's that same thing about um, <laughs> assuming that what's going to happen, um, that the mulch is going to have that huge of an effect on the entire soil system. So if you look at the soil, and I've actually done research on this and, 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 and gotten lab tests back on, on the chemistry of the soil. If you test the soil, that's touching the mulch, the wood chips, you will find it's very low in nitrogen. And it takes a good half a year for that effect to go away. But if you go just one centimeter below that, it's normal. So the fact that you get a deficiency at the, at the, at the interface is great because what that means is seeds don't germinate. And most of us that, you know, they're using wood chip mulches, seeds mean weed seeds. So part of that nitrogen deficiency is keeping weed seeds from germinating, but it's not affecting the roots of the existing plants at all. Um, and the benefits of, of wood chip mulches far outweigh um, that nitrogen deficiency at the interface. Yeah, I was. I frequently would recommend to people if they, you know, had a newly cut landscape where nothing was growing, especially if they had a really steep one, where nothing was going to grow, nothing was going to hold. I'd say, well, cover it in, you know, six inches or so of wood chips, and let them decompose, and then you're going to have great soil underneath that. Yep. And by golly, it worked. It sure does. And as you know, this is an area that I've I've done a ton of research on, I've published on, and I used it when I was teaching classes at the University of Washington, we had um, uh, student-run projects where we would be uh, restoring uh, degraded parklands and other areas around the city, and that was the first thing you do is you put down a foot of wood chips and you let it sit, and then you start planting. And it's, it's amazing the, the beneficial properties that just simple wood chips can bring. 
Yeah, and in most cases it's free. You can't get any better than that. And okay. some people say, well, you know, they look ugly. Uh, these are just, you know, they're not even pieces. They're not like the colored pine bark and stuff like that. But frankly, I find the colored pine bark to be repulsive. Yeah, it's it's an acquired taste. I'm going to put it that way. Um, <laughs> what 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 I what I've actually been successful at convincing some people because some people really don't like looks, and so I say, okay, this is what you do: is put down the first you know three four inches of wood chips, and then put just an inch of your favorite colored mulch on the top of it. So you've got your aesthetic appeal, but the bulk of that material is the good old arborist wood chips. That is a great idea. We have to take another little break right now, but we'll be right back after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, and we're talking about gardening myths. And one of the things that I'm really happy to hear her talk about is using what's free in the environment, the, the wood chips that come from the chipper, straight chipper run, not fancy. And her tip the last, or I when we took a little break, I mentioned that I like the way she thinks because I also recommend to people that if they have, you know, ugly-looking mulch that they don't like to uh, just top it with something that you do. But you wouldn't ever consider topping it with um, rubberized mulch, would you, chopped tires? Oh, that came out of the blue. Um, no, <laughs> I, I really dislike the rubberized mulch. And actually, you probably live in a climate where people learn really quickly not to use it because you're in an area that's hot enough that once that you find out what happens, um, once it gets hot enough, um, you know about that rubberized mulch because mm-hmm. you can smell it, mm-hmm. and if you walk on it, you get burned. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a horrendous way 
of recycling tires. Um, you know, as, as, I've, as I've made the point before, you know, the EPA considers tire dumps, you know, illegal tire dumps to be a, a pollution problem. So my husband actually is the one who put this so succinctly and said, you know, if the EPA considers tires to be a pollution problem, then why is it okay to chop them up and put them all over the landscape? They and know. I think that's an excellent question. Yeah, for a while they were using them, and I guess they still do, but I'm not in the business anymore. They were using chopped rubber tires for mulch, and in one area that I know of, one of my homeowner clients um, found that they had used their chopped tires for their septic drain field and fill in around it. And, of course, um, you know, all that stuff, the stuff that was over the septic tank was coming out, and they were getting little wires all over the place when they would mow the lawn. It was a real hazard. So I don't know who came up with that idea. I understand that someplace, I think it was in your state, that there are, were some athletes that were developing strange cancers from playing on um, the artificial turf that was made out of them. Yeah, there's been, you know, this is one of those correlation versus causation things. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say that one's causing the other, but, yeah, it was it was the state, and I think it's been other states, too, where uh, concerned parents of, of student-athletes um, were saying, you know, when they're using these um, turf fields where they use crumb rubber as a substrate for the for the artificial turf, that, you know, that, that things were happening health-wise that they didn't like. Um and there's enough research out there on the crumb rubber, which is, you know, really finely ground. It's like sand. Um, it, it's, it's not a safe material either. And so a lot of these um, artificial turf fields are actually being taken out. They're going back to, to, to grass, which, of course, takes more maintenance, but it doesn't have that, that potential hazard there. That's that's a good thing to know. I, I had heard that some parents were agitating for that. I didn't know it was already happening. And I think, you know, not that I like turf particularly, but it, it's cooler. You know, you you got to give it that. Um, but, you know, down at UGA, they were doing some research with rubber tire mulch around the blueberry um, their blueberry experiments, and they discovered that they were get, they were getting zinc toxicity from it. Yep. That's scary if you're using that stuff anywhere near where your kids are going to be playing or whether you're going to be growing food that you're going to be eating. Not to mention that the plants didn't grow all that well either. Right. And the other thing, I mean, you know, galvanized tires have a lot of zinc. That's just the way that the rubber is. And so that's, that's, been, a, that's been a well-known problem. Um, what people don't think about is if, you're, if you have used tires, they're picking up other things when they were actually on the car, like lead. And mm-hmm. they found with a lot of these, um, uh, you know, rubberized mulches that they have, well, not the mulches so much, but the tires um, have, you know, lead particles and these other heavy metals. And, you know, once you, once you put those on your landscape, they're there. It's an element. It doesn't break down. So by, by bringing in these, these rubberized mulches, you know, you may be unwittingly bringing in sources of heavy metals that you really don't want in your soil. And lead can blow in the breeze, and it's yep. easily picked up by kids as their kids are playing. They get it on their hand, and, you know, a lot of kids, especially the littlest ones, they go right from their hand to their into their mouth. Um, that's just too scary. I wish they would ban it. As your husband says, why don't they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense to add that pollution problem to your landscape. Right. Wow. So I hope nobody uses 
rubberized mulch in their landscape besides it stinking. Ugh. Too many other bad things with it. Now, let's get back to some other mulch myths, like watering during the day will burn the leaves of your plants. Yeah, and that that one, you know, it, it seems it seems to make sense, like so many myths do. You know, it seems to make a certain amount of logical sense that if you've got water droplets out there, that it would focus the sun's rays and and, and burn like magnifying glasses do. But it, it actually doesn't. Um, and what people are usually seeing um, if they're watering midday, what's happened is they've noticed that a plant is wilting. So they go out there and water it, and they come back the next day or two, and they find that the, the leaves are, are all dry and crispy. And that's not because they watered midday. It's because they watered too late. So people are seeing um, terminal wilt, in other words, wilt that you don't recover from, and they're watering. And then when the leaves die, they mistakenly think it's because they watered at the wrong time of the day. So as you know, you know, if you, if you go to the beach or something, um, and you go in water and you come back out, you're cooler once you come back out because you've got water in your skin. It doesn't intensify the sun and make you hotter. It doesn't burn you. It actually cools you. So watering is always going to cool foliage. It's not going to make it hotter. We are sort of fortunate in this area in that people are restricted in the hours that they can water. Um, no watering allowed for the most part in the middle of the day. So the plants can go, they can go into the date, hottest part of the day having already gotten their water. Yeah, and, that's, um, and that, that gets people, you know, their behavior to change so that they're doing the, the watering in the morning, which when you're looking at water conservation is, is the best time to do it. Um, and, of course, the caveat is any time your plants look stressed, that's the time to water. <laughs> If you come home from work and they're laying on the ground, will it? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, uh, I can't tell you how much that, that watering in the middle of the day thing has plagued, I don't know, most, I think it plagues most extension offices and master gardener question, question booths because, of course, we do have very, very intense sun. Even in the wintertime here, you can get a good sunburn sure. um, if you're out there. You know, as as a gardener, you go run out on the first good day that you have, and and you don't think in the winter to put on sunscreen. So it is very very intense. But I'm glad we've put that one to rest too. Now another thing that I see a lot of people do is they will set their irrigation system on to go 20 minutes at a time, off and on pretty much all day. That's a no no too, isn't it? Yeah, because, if, you know, what's going to happen with that first bit of water you're putting down any time you irrigate, a lot of that's just going to get evaporated right off. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're doing that perpetually where you're doing, you know, 20 minutes at a time and you're assuming that maybe half of that actually gets to the soil, um, you're not doing as much good as, as watering for a longer period of time, letting the soil saturate and actually moving down to the roots rather than just superficially watering the top of the soil and having most of that be gone. Yeah. And, and it also encourages plant roots to stay up near the surface where if we go on 100% water restrictions or, you know, we have a bad dry spell when we wouldn't normally water, those plants are toast. That's right. If that's the only place that the, that the water is, 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 is in the upper regions, and that's where all the feeder roots are, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's amazing when you go out there, and I know in part that it's because people have installed new turf and they, you know, they're 
sprinkler system is set up to do the new turf, but they don't, you know, they're not taught how to back the system off or that it should be done. And then they wonder why they're having all sorts of plant diseases. And I had a lady with a vegetable garden that was getting watered over her, off of her lawn sprinkler that was set, you know, for the 20-minute cycle. And she couldn't understand why her tomato plants were all turning black and dying. Well, you know, they, they had the best case of late blight that I had seen since, <laughs> we, had, since we had a week of, of rain and cool temperatures one year. Oh, that was, that was not a good thing. So that's bad on all sorts of things. Now, talking about water, let's talk a little bit about water-saving gels. Okay. Well, um, everyone's probably seen these marketed, and if they haven't seen them marketed, they've probably seen them in uh, the container plants they buy or sometimes in um, uh, potting mixes. And so they're those little granules that, that absorb uh, a bunch of water, and then they get um, big and squishy. And actually, you've probably seen these other places, too. They get sold as, uh, this is just horrifying for reasons that we'll talk about, they get sold as, um, as toys for kids. You know that you can make these, and then they're different colors, and they're different shapes, and you add water, and they, you know, they they appear, and you can play with them, and it's just it's horrifying me. So this is the same thing that's in disposable diapers. This is how they work. Okay, so you you get these diapers, and all of a sudden they're able to hold all this water, but nothing leaks out, and it's because of these gels. And the gels themselves um, were used for other reasons before they started getting used for for garden products. They get used a lot in labs because this is how they make those gels where they're doing um, electrophoresis, you know, when they're doing DNA extraction and things like that. That's, that's what they use. And so there is a lot known about these gels. And the funny thing is, is that when you're done with these gels, there's very specific instructions on how to dispose of them because they're made from a, a, a monomer, a, you know, a, a single unit that is both a neurotoxin and a carcinogen, and that's acrylamide. So people are putting those in their pots and then growing vegetables with things that are a carcinogen. That's well, right, and, and let me back up to say that acrylamide itself is not the known carcinogen and, and neurotoxin. It's, it's the, the, the breakdown that make it up. But as the stuff breaks down, and gets to be smaller and smaller pieces, we don't really know what those smaller and smaller pieces are. We don't know how hazardous they are. And the problem with this whole process is, as you know, when things are decomposing, you're getting all kinds of unknown products during the process. And in an ideal system, you know what every single one of those products are and you know what their safety is, but we don't, we don't know those things. So you can assume there's always going to be acrylamide there, um, and that is a real danger. And you can assume that since laboratories at universities and other facilities have very specific instructions about disposing of these gels, that they're probably not something you really want to have in your landscape. You sure don't want your kids playing with them. I didn't know they were making kids toys with them. That mm-hmm. is, that's really scary. I, you know, when they first came out, I thought, hey, this is going to be great. And I tried them for a while, and what I discovered was, and A, they don't work all that well retaining moisture, except if they're flooded constantly. And if, if you end up with a rainy spell and you've got these in your soil, um, they will they'll hold so much moisture that your plants will drown. Yeah, it's just a big, it's just a big mushy mess when, mm-hmm. you, when you have them outside. It's just horrific. 
And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're really trying to use them so you don't have to water as often, you know, people assume that, okay, you got these gels and they're going to be, you know, nice and friendly and they give water to my plants. The problem is, as the gels dry out, they hang on to the water that's there more and more. And eventually they start pulling water away from the roots. So they'll actually dehydrate your roots if there's not enough water in the soil. So they don't want you to use that either. Mm-hmm. We've got to take our last break of this session, um, but we'll be right back after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm here today with Dr. Linda Chalker Scott, and we're talking gardening myths. And one of the myths that still persists, and I, I knew I grew up with it. My mother was a great gardener with houseplants, and um, she always instructed me to put a layer of, well, actually, most of the time it was just one shard of upside down in the bottom of the pot to take over that hole. And somehow or another, and, and that still makes sense, I guess, with, if you're using a clay pot to keep the water from coming out. But somehow or another, it got to be popular to put a whole bunch of rocks in the bottom, thinking that that was going to improve drainage. But you've done some research on that, haven't you? Well, not just me, but people 100 years ago did research on this. Um, and, and this still is a very common myth. And it's because it makes a certain amount of logical sense. You know, to, to us. So, so we think about water movement, and we think, you know, when you've got something like gravel, you know, water's just going to pour through gravel. Yet something like clay is just going to sit there. So, so we understand, you know, because we see it, we understand how water moves through different types of, of materials. But what we don't understand until we see it for ourselves is that when you have two soils or materials that are um, really different in size and texture, um, that when the water moves through one of those layers and then it hits that interface between the two, it stops moving. And this, this completely baffles us because we assume, you know, you've got 
let's say you've got, you know, sandy soil on top and you've got your layer of gravel or let's say you've got clay on top and you've got sand underneath or whatever you've got, you assume once it hits that lower level where it's um, more coarsely textured, the water's just going to pour through it and it doesn't. It actually backs up and creates a perched water table. And the reason is because water is water's weird. Water has its own way of, of moving and when it reaches textural interfaces, so a difference in, in texture between soil types or, or material types, it stops moving through those spaces. And only starts moving again once you've got so much water in the system where gravity actually forces it through. So you can see this, um, as I said, there was research that was done almost 100 years ago actually at Washington State University where um, the, a professor made um, some cutaways showing, you know, these different types of soil layers and then dripping water through and showing what happened in these cutaways with water movement. And it just will not go through that, that interface until there's so much water in the top part that it just forces it through. And When I first saw that as, with a cutaway pot as an experiment, um, they, they taught it in my master gardener class. And I, I was just blown away. I said it would just sit there and sit there and sit there. I think, did you have a video on it someplace on either the garden professors or on one of your WSU websites? I think it might have been garden professors, and I think it might have been Jeff Gilman who put that up okay. there. Yeah. I will dig that out, and I will put it, because so, I know it, it just defies all logic until you see it when you actually actually see it happening. I will put that up on our Facebook page with a reminder to people that I always put show notes up and I always put a link to, in this case, our guest's two books, or well, three, um, The um, Informed Gardener and How Plants Work. And I hope that we're going to be able to get you back again to talk about more about how plants work. But as long as we're talking about different soil interfaces. Let's talk about one of the old planting myths, because some of our listeners are going to be planting fruit trees and other um, trees this fall and early next spring. Um, it used to be that we were told to dig a great big hole, really deep, and fill it with compost, and then plant, plant our tree in it. But we don't like to do that anymore, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> and, and nobody recommends doing that anymore. Um, that comes out of the, the, the university systems, that's for sure. Um, yeah, what ha I mean, it seems, again, there's a certain logic behind this because we see how well things grow when we have them in containers with, with compost or potting mix or something that's really rich. They grow really well. And this is what they do, obviously, in nursery production. You're not using a native soil. You're using, you know, some kind of mix that has all kinds of, you know, great microbes in it and nutrients and all that. But it's not what's in your landscape. And the problem is, is when you fill up the planting hole with something that's not the same texture as everything around it, it's that same issue with water moving through it. So if water isn't going to move through those textural interfaces, plant roots won't either. So what happens in the summertime is that these very light, fluffy holes, you know, well, light, fluffy materials in holes, dry out very quickly. And they're not rehydrated because water is not going to move from the surrounding soil into that fluffy mixture. In the wintertime, when you have a lot of water, it becomes a bathtub because water fills up very quickly and doesn't move very quickly into the surrounding soil. So it's a very, um, <laughs> it's a very problematic way to... to, to um, plant plants because you're putting them in the system where it's either, you know, um, 
too much or too little, and it's because of that difference in the material. So you don't want to add stuff inside the planting hole. What you want to do is top dress. So you take that same compost and you put it over the top of the soil about an inch or so, and then you know put a put a uh, another kind of mulch on top of that. But you don't put it in the planting hole. In, in Georgia, in particular, since we have very heavy clay soil. Um, it's interesting to go, when I was, was working for Extension and we'd go out because people would call and say, you know, our plant was dying, can you come and tell us what it was? And half the time I would say if it was a dead plant, it was a water issue, and very often we could just pull the plant right up out of the hole and it would sloosh. You know, it would just be wet in there. Like, And we also had for a while some not-too-swift landscapers supposed landscapers who would dig their planting holes with a, with a soil auger, a fence post auger. Yeah. Um, that didn't work too well either. So I'm glad we can put that one apart. Now, talking about a little bit about fruit trees again, I've seen a lot of, um, I don't know that, I don't think I've ever seen it on an extension website, thank goodness, but I've seen an awful lot of people lately recommending getting three dwarf fruit trees and putting them all in the same planting hole. Yeah, then that's a a really common thing, and it's not not a good practice at all. Um, I, I actually wrote about this one on our on the garden professor's blog, and what I did was I got into the literature to see if I could figure out, you know, where is this coming from, because I was assured that this is all science-based. And I will say that there are um, uh, intensively managed agricultural systems where they do plant fairly densely, but they're not putting them all in the same hole, and they're not putting them nearly that close together. So even if you're digging three holes, they wouldn't be that close together. So there are, you know, systems where you're using smaller trees, you know, dwarf trees, and their roots obviously don't go as far as larger trees, and you can plant them densely, but not to the density that is being recommended for doing these three, three trees in one hole. And the problem is, is, you know, you're just introducing this huge competition issue. They're all going to compete with each other. And probably what's going to happen is one of them is probably not going to be as vigorous as the other two, and it's going to die. So it's, it's not that they're going to help each other. Um, you know, plants don't do that. <laughs> plants compete with each other. They don't help each other. Um, and it's, just, it's, a, it's a bad system. Thank you. I, I couldn't imagine, especially, I, I thought it might work maybe in some climate. I know in ours, we have to keep our fruit trees pretty well thinned out uh, because we, have, we need the air circulation. When we get our summer wet spells where the plants, where we have a thunderstorm in the evening or the afternoon and the plant stays wet all the way through the night and into the next day, that's, that's really hard on plants that don't have air circulation. It's hard on them anyway, but then when you don't have the air circulation. Now, we've been talking about planting holes, and I know we're running out of time, but what we really don't want, we don't really want to do a nice deep planting hole, do we? No, and you know, we waste a lot of time and energy doing that. So we have this perception, and again, it's a kind of a human thing. We love seeing symmetry. So we think about, you know, trees. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're tall, and so we think of the roots kind of being the opposite of that going the other direction. So we think about them having this giant taproot. And sure, seedlings have taproots, but mature plants do not. And so if you look at blowdown trees, for instance, you don't see a giant carrot sticking out of the ground. What you see is a big mass, you know, a pancake of roots going all different directions. 
So mature trees and shrubs have pancakes as root systems. They don't have carrots. And so when you dig a hole, you shouldn't be digging it for a carrot or you shouldn't be digging it the same shape and size as a container. You should be digging it for what the roots actually look like. So this gets into a whole other thing, which I know we don't have time for, in terms of how you go about planting trees and shrubs um, so that their roots are going the direction you want. But no, you don't have to dig very deep holes. You should dig them wide, and they should look like the root system looks, not like a carrot. I like that, carrot versus pancake. Um, I will put a link up on our website, to, on the Facebook page, to how to plant. We've got, there's some really good literature out there so people don't have a problem. They can find the information fairly easily, but I'll put up a link. Now, we are very close to out of time, and doggone it, I want to talk about, wanted to talk about why slugs eat your plants and not your weeds, and <laughs> about why tree leaves turn when it's not fall and things like that. But we are just about out of time, so why don't you tell people how they can get hold of you, um, where you blog, where, you fi- where they can find your articles? Okay, well, um, my website's really easy to find, So rather than give, and rather than giving you the, the university ad- address, which is completely unmemorable, I actually <laughs> bought a web address, and it's theinformedgardener.com. Good. All one word, and it'll take you right over to my university page, and that's full of these horticultural myths, and we've got some fact sheets and projects and all kinds of stuff there. It's all free. So that's, that's one way. Um, if you want to read what we blog about, and I will admit that we've fallen down on <laughs> posting blogs recently for a lot of different reasons, but there's a huge archive that goes all the way back to 2009. Um, that's uh, gardenprofessors.com. And then if people are on Facebook, which obviously your listeners are, if you go to Garden Professors, you'll find our page, and then if you want to join a really great group that Daryl's part of, it's the Garden Professors blog group. And we've got, we're getting close to 8,000 people in there. Wow. And the, yeah. And the, and the cool thing is um, that this is a, a discussion group or a forum that only recommends science-based practices. So we don't do home remedies. We don't do anecdotal stuff. We do stuff that's based on scientific research. And it's the only place you're going to find that. I'm I'm surprised now that it's gotten enough momentum. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because gardeners are a helping bunch of people. But I've been I've been delighted by how many people um, have jumped in with articles that you've written, sending people links to to the truth or how to do this or that or something else. Um, so it's got a great synergy to it. And of course, you know, like like with every blog or every Facebook page, there are a few crabs, but you do a really good job of weeding them out. No, there's there's a fantastic group of people here. I mean, they're from all over the world. There are a lot of people that are that are faculty experts in different disciplines. I mean, this is even though we've lost so many of our extension people in the state, we've got virtual extension colleagues in entomology and pathology and and all the in in farms, small farms. And they're all part of this group. It's it's great. Just and some plain old gardeners, which which shouldn't leave you know. So people just don't feel intimidated about it. They can join in even if they don't. Even if you just read and and follow along, it's amazingly amazing what you can learn. And I'm oh, yeah. afraid that's 
all our time for today. Linda, we're just going to have to get you back on another time. That's just it, because we didn't even get to your other book. Anyway, (laughs) that's all the time we have today, but we will be right back here next week with more of America's Homegrown Video. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.